0: and thanks for listening.
1: Hey, everyone, I have an exciting announcement. We recently secured a gift of $15,000 to match all donations given by the end of the year. As a fully self-funded project of the Commonwealth Club, we rely on supporters like you to bring this podcast to you every week. To support more climate conversations like this one, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to climate1.org donate. Your gift of any amount will be doubled. Thank you for listening and for your support. Now for this week's pod. Who's to blame when the lights go out in California? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. The 2018 campfire was one of the most destructive in California's history, resulting in over 80 deaths and destroying the town of Paradise. Dry weather and hot winds fanned the flames,
2: but the spark that lit them came from a faulty transmission line. This was literally a 98-year-old line that runs through a national forest. PG&E is not even 100% sure when the last time they inspected uh, that tower was. After their aging infrastructure was blamed for a series of deadly wildfires, Pacific
1: Gas & Electric, known as PG&E, pulled the plug, literally. The planned power shutoffs were designed to prevent more fires during the state's driest and most fire-prone months. The move may have prevented fires, but it also sparked anger and frustration, as nearly two million people sat in the dark and costs shifted from the company to its customers. According to former Public Utilities Commissioner Loretta Lynch, the problems
3: with the company go back for years. I'm concerned that the rot at PG&E is so thorough and pervasive, it can't be fixed. So now we need to change it. On today's show, we'll be talking with a number of experts about the future of California's
1: largest utility. We invited PG&E to participate, but over the course of a month, the company declined to make a spokesperson available. My first guess are two reporters who've written extensively about the wildfires, Russell Gold of the Wall Street Journal and J.D. Morris of the San Francisco Chronicle. California's had wildfires forever. But as Russell Gold reported, it's only in recent years that PG&E has been implicated.
2: You really have to go back to 2015 and the Butte fire, which was the first major fire that we had seen where very clearly there was a PG&E line uh, that had started it. I mean, going back before that, this wasn't really seen as as a Northern California issue. You had the instances in 2007 in San Diego where the Witch Fire was started by some San Diego Gas and Electric lines, but when the regulators looked into the the, the Witch Fire. They they were like well okay that's a Santa Ana winds issue that's a Southern California issue Northern California is different we don't have to have the same precautions we don't have to ask pg e to take the same you know just level of preparedness and 2015 is when that started to really shift. Because by 2015, uh, California was about two, three years into the drought. The tree mortalities was becoming more widely understood. You know, but but people sort of looked at 2015, the Butte fire. It was it was a large fire, but it wasn't particularly destructive. Uh, and, and I think people just looked at it and said, you know, this is a one-off issue. Uh, PG&E stock did not move very much. There, there wasn't a panic. Uh, and really then 2016 was a quiet year. We didn't have any major fires to speak of. And it really wasn't until October 8, 2017, when all of a sudden it seemed like the entire area in the North Bay, Napa and Sonoma counties was on fire, that people sort of said, well, wait a second, this wasn't just some sort of, uh, you know, black swan in 2015. There's something going on here. And people really started looking at it. And when we did look at it, one of the things we found was that Uh, PG&E in in particular, although Southern California Edison also going down the coast uh, into Southern California – their equipment was starting a lot of fires. Uh, they have been required to report since uh, I believe about mid-2014 all the fires that their equipment starts. And this is, some of them are big fires and some of them are just, you know, small fires that get put out. But the numbers are stunning. When we when we had a story about this in January, I, I believe the number was more than one every day, an average of one a day. Now, obviously, they're not spread throughout the year. They're happening in certain times. But just to give uh, people sense. This is happening all the time. So suddenly, reporters, uh, the utility, the regulars, everyone was starting to look at uh, PG&E in particular and, and, and ask themselves, why is this happening? Why are they starting so many fires? And what was the company's response? And were they forthcoming, or did they try to uh, sort of hide
1: information, Russell Gold? You did an investigation into this. <laughs> um, well,
2: <laughs> good question. Um, look, the, the company very quickly realized that this was, in some ways, an existential threat for them. Uh, The way California laws are written, they bear all responsibility for the fire financially. And if they got caught causing a big major fire uh, that was going to be a major event. Uh, and so, you know, to a certain extent, they they did not, you know, before 2017, before the wine country fires that JD was talking about, they really pushed back against it. After 2017, I think they took the position. They, they couldn't they couldn't claim that they weren't responsible. They had to accept uh, accept it. Uh, but they were not—there there was one thing that they were not very forthcoming about. Uh, and let's jump forward to the campfire in 2018. They were required to report uh, that they thought that they had started—they may have started this fire, that there was some indications that the fire started under their transmission line. But what they didn't report and what it took just months of of digging and going through— thousands of pages of filings in, in Washington, D.C. to begin to understand is that when I first heard about this fire under a transmission line in some place I'd never heard of called Polga, California, um, you know, I thought, OK, well, this is sort of a modern transmission line, the kind that you see every day. And it wasn't. This was literally a 98-year-old line that it runs through a national forest uh, and you know, what's been amazing to me, and this has only come out in just like bits and pieces, is that PG&E is not even 100% sure when the last time they inspected uh, that tower was, when they climbed up it to take a look to see whether the hardware was in good shape. They had actually identified this line, the Caribou Palermo line, as a line that they wanted to do maintenance on. Uh, but, you know, they kept pushing it off and pushing it off. And, and year after year, it sort of became something that they would do next year. Uh, and I, if memory serves they were planning to do it once again in 2019 um, until the fire happened in 2018.
1: What J.D. Morris, what were the financial incentives that the company had at this time to uh, you know, spend a dollar on, on uh clearing trees or or give a dollar to shareholders?
4: Well, that kind of gets to the heart of a debate that's raging in California with regard to PGE right now, which is the very model of an investor-owned utility itself and whether that is whether it is appropriate for PG&E to remain in that way going forward. Currently, the way investor-owned utilities work here and I believe everywhere is the California Public Utilities Commission, which is our state regulator of those entities, um, you know, has these – Rate making cases that they do um, Like every three years They'll authorize pg to Collect a certain amount of Money um, through rates When pg e makes a proposal Saying this is what we want to spend These are the things we want to invest in But then they have a separate proceeding um, That deals with the Shareholders return on equity, the the profit side of the equation, because PG&E as an investor-owned utility is not allowed to make a profit from, um, you know, just selling electricity, but they can make a profit off of the other stuff. And so they have those proceedings, um, but there's a lot of scrutiny right now about whether... You know, they spent all the money that they were supposed to. They also have a totally separate scenario now where they have to do these wildfire mitigation plans, wildfire safety plan, PG&E calls it. And that process was born out of the 2017 um, wildfires, really. And that's where uh, PG&E and the other utilities are coming in and proposing um, every year now what they want to spend to make their system, um, you know, more wildfire resilient. But with PG&E, it really shows how much work they have left to do. They are saying, um, if I recall correctly, that they want to do system hardening, which is basically, um, you know, covering bare wires, installing more resilient power poles, undergrounding and targeted locations, things like that. Over 7,100 miles of power lines in high fire threat areas, and it's going to take them 10 years to do that. To put it in context, they have 125,000 miles of power lines across their whole system. Um, so that there's a tension there, Russell Gold. Uh, you know, I've covered
1: uh, climate for more than ten years, as you know, and, and PG&E has been hist- one of the most progressive utilities in the country on climate. They backed out of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce because of climate. They have been positioned themselves as one of the cleanest and greenest utilities in the country, uh, and yet. Should they have seen this coming? Know what they kn- Knowing what they knew about climate and given their leadership position on climate, should they have started that 10-year project that J.D. Morris just mentioned 10 years ago because they knew this was coming?
2: You know, that's been one of the most fascinating and frustrating parts of reporting this story. And I've been reporting this story nonstop now uh, since November, since the campfire. Uh, there is no question That PGD, among all three of the California utilities, was a leader on renewable energy procurement. Uh, They were amongst the most green uh, utilities in the country. And the California regulators were pushing them to do that. This was, you know, this is a state, this is a utility that fully believes that climate change is happening and was making adjustments to create a climate uh, friendly source of power, power system. Um, However, in doing that, in sort of thinking about how do we bring in more wind, how do we bring in more solar, uh, how do we accommodate, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, of new rooftop solar installations, they seem to have taken their eye off the ball on what was happening in their backyard. And, you know, I had a um, a, a video that I helped put together, and it showed, it was sort of fascinating, the lines, the circuits that were causing PG&E the most trouble over a 10-year 10 span tended to be these very remote lines in places like outside of Paradise up by Redding. I mean, really very remote rural lines. And these were the exact lines that were in the highest fire threat areas, the Tier 3 fire threat areas. And you know, one of the questions that's come up is, why weren't you paying more attention to these lines? They paid lots of attention to lines that serve Big suburban areas, large number of customers, uh, but these lines that were remote and served very few customers, uh, they were not paying attention to. And, you know, the only conclusion you really can reach was they did not see the fire risk coming. If they had seen the fire risk coming and understood the existential threat it posed to them as a company, they, they must have done something more than this. And so I think the only answer you can come to is they did not understand just how quickly the climate was changing. And how much of a problem that was going to be. And one of the big takeaway lessons I've gotten from this as a business reporter is that for a company like PG&E, which is so climate-forward, which thinks about this and talks about this, even pg can be caught by surprise by how much the climate around them has changed and the kind of risk that that presents to them as a company.
1: I mean, I've, I've heard Governor Schwarzenegger 10 years ago talk about a year-round fire season in California, but it never really penetrated my consciousness or a lot of people until these fires came close to urban areas. We thought it was remote and, and uh, non-populated areas. So, Russell Gold, what are the lessons for other utilities? Other companies providing energy around the United States, because so far this seems, you know, be isolated in California. What are the lessons if PG&E, a green company, got surprised by this? What are the lessons, the abject lessons?
2: That they need to take a really hard look at the risks they're facing, uh, and they need to talk to their regulators and say, "Look, this might require raising rates. We might have to do some stuff you don't want to do. But if we don't, you know, we're going to be facing some serious risks." You know, look, you're already seeing this in Florida utilities, which are spending more to harden their systems because the hurricanes they're mm-hmm. facing are stronger. But you know, if I were up in the Pacific Northwest, very similar situation to what you see in Northern California, uh, if I were in places in the Southeast, like Tennessee, which has seen some wildfires that they've never seen before, I'd be taking a really hard look at my uh, at my system, and uh, and addressing these risks. JD Morris, we did a conversation earlier this year where I
1: think it was from you I learned for the first time of these idea of these. Uh Public safety shutoffs—the idea that that this was so bad that that uh, people would be without power, even if they live far away from wildfire areas, even if people who live in cities but their energy comes from some remote area. So, tell us about how this came about, the idea, and should should PG&E have started to quote sectionalize its grid earlier so they could have more granularity in what they turn off, rather than you know two million people?
4: Well, first of all, I agree with everything Russell just said with regard to you know, the only conclusion you can come to is that they did not understand how fast that risk was evolving. And I think the same statement is true when it comes to sectionalizing the grid, certainly. Um, And and let me just interject that I've interviewed Cal Fire, forest fire experts,
1: and they've told me that what happened in the Camp Fire spread much faster than their model. So even oh, fire yeah. professionals have been dramatically surprised by the speed and intensity uh, of, of these fires. So pg is not alone in being surprised sure. by these fires, even fire professionals.
4: But it was the same story with the Tubbs Fire in Santa Rosa as well. A very similar thing. A fire started in Napa and raced across the Mayacamas Mountains um, and tore into San, the city of Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco, and decimated entire neighborhoods, killed um, like 22 people along the way, and no one saw it coming. It was moving faster than um, than anyone could uh, could handle it. But I think that, yeah, getting back to sectionalization, to making the grid more targeted and Narrowing the parts of it that you can shut off That is something that they're doing But like a lot of the Wildfire safety measures they're undertaking It takes a long time And right now we're living In a reality where They can't do it that well On a wide scale And so they are turning off power To millions of Californians They did that repeatedly In October After warning that they might do it for a year But I think that a very large portion, probably a majority of the state was not ready for that to actually happen. And then, of course, we saw a lot of missteps with PG&E in the way that they executed that.
2: And Russell, will talk—Russell Gold— I was just going to say, I mean, the lesson, the lesson here um, is that climate change is not a problem that's coming 10 years from now. Climate change is here right now, yep. and we need to either play catch up or try to get ahead of it. But the lesson is that if you're not paying attention to the way the climate around you is changing, you could miss something. A a giant fire, a flood, along the lines of what Houston uh, experienced with Harvey. Uh, We are starting to see more and more evidence that our 20th century infrastructure is just not made for the 21st century weather. Exactly.
1: Right. And um, Rus- Russell Gold, as a business reporter, have you covered the business impact? I'm thinking about people who can't get insurance, pe- property markets, people who are moving out of these areas and saying, look, all right, this is enough. I'm out of here. I'm going to sell my house and, and or, or, you know, move. You know, so what's the, what's the business impact of these fires? Have, have you drilled into that?
2: Well, the, yeah, there there are a couple of very, very significant impacts that have happened so far. Uh, one, you hit the nail on the head. It's insurance. It is increasingly difficult to get insurance if you own a home in California, especially in what's called the wildland-urban interface. Uh, and that is going to completely... Uh, maybe not completely change, but it could, but have a very significant effect on the real estate market in California. I mean, what's been happening to date is that the urban areas in California have gotten very expensive, very difficult to build housing. People have been in search of less expensive housing has been pushed further and further out. I don't think that trend is going to be able to continue because you're not going to be able to insure your houses further and further out. If you can insure your houses, you won't be able to get federally backed mortgages. It's really going to have an impact on where people live. Um, the other big error, the other big um, impact that the PG&E bankruptcy had is that pg and utility. I mean, this is what you know we used to call granny stocks. These are very safe and secure stocks that delivered a nice dividend. You didn't have to worry about it. Um, all of those. Owners of the stock were wiped out, had to sell at a, at a pretty dramatic loss. Most of pg and right now is owned by hedge funds that are sort of betting to see which way the outcome goes. So you also had a, a big financial hit. Uh, if your portfolio was a large portion of PG&E stocks that you were hoping were going to deliver this nice dividend uh, through your retirement, uh, not just was the dividend cut off a year ago. And who knows when it comes back? to years A couple years two years ago, and it could be easily two more years before the dividend comes back. But the actual value of the stock has just been decimated. Uh, So, you know, in both those cases, this has had a very significant impact and will continue to have an impact on people into the future.
1: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change, wildfires, and powering California's future. That was Russell Gold, energy reporter with The Wall Street Journal, and J.D. Morris of the San Francisco Chronicle, coming up. Can PG&E
3: handle the heat? If you want those four things, safety, reliability, clean energy, and at a reliable cost, PG&E has lost the benefit of the doubt and frankly has lost the right to bamboozle us one more day.
1: That's up next
3: when Climate One continues.
1: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about California's biggest public utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E. We invited them to participate, but over the course of a month, they didn't make a spokesperson available. Suppression of forest fires and climate change has made California a tinderbox with unusually low humidity, dry landscapes, and mountains loaded with dead and dying trees ready to burn. That raises the stakes when faulty power lines or other equipment spark fires that spread faster and are more devastating than before. To prevent wildfires, PG&E shut the power off in Northern California, plunging much of the world's fifth-largest economy into darkness for days. The estimated costs of those outages, called public safety power shutoffs, have ranged from $100 million to more than a billion. Here to help us put those numbers in perspective are Catherine Wolfram, professor at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, and Emily Wimberger, a climate economist at the Rhodium Group, which analyzed how big the economic impact of the blackouts
0: is and who should pay. We're still doing calculations to try to figure out the overall cost, but putting this, the recent, um, public safety power outages from PGE in perspective, Rhodium Group did an analysis and really realized, um, even though this seemed like a very large event in California, that they don't really rank when it comes to electricity outages nationwide over the past 10 years. Most of those are driven by natural events, um, hurricanes. I think the top five are all hurricanes. And in terms of operational outages, the biggest event on October 26 from pg e um, that ranked a third in operational outages over the past 10 years nationally. So in terms of the size, these uh, outages got a lot of attention. But in terms of the overall size relative to other outages, it's actually quite small thus far.
1: Of course, there's a difference between a hurricane, which that's kind of an involuntary outage versus there were some, I don't know, operational
3: Operational,
1: or voluntary outages in the Southwest in 2011, Puerto Rico, 2016, Texas, 2011. Those were much bigger. But what's really happening here? Because when there's a fire that's caused by an electricity, obviously, that can be deadly and people can lose their lives. But that's also a cost borne by the utility, and in this case, the utility is shifting the costs onto customers, and and it, this is costing the utility a lot less. Emily,
0: yes, and I think there's been a lot of discussion recently, um, both on the regulatory side and just operationally from the utilities, on who should bear the cost and what is the infrastructure requirement, and who should be paying for these costs in maintaining infrastructure.
1: Catherine, your take on sort of whether this, you know, this is being socialized, whether a a for-profit corporation and investors are kind of pushing the costs onto citizens and, and taxpayers in California.
5: Yeah, definitely. The people who are losing electricity are the ones that are bearing the cost. The people that are losing frozen food, that aren't able to run medical equipment, we've at Cal... I think probably the main cost has been just all the time people have had to devote to thinking about alternative plans and moving specimens from one freezer to another. So there's just been a, a lot of time devoted to to trying to salvage things um, and, and not have really severe losses from the outages. So it's the, the cost of these outages have been borne by the customers. pg and is definitely suffering from these outages, though, that this has been Absolutely horrible public relations for them. Um, The outages themselves, and then the fact that their website crashed, so people couldn't check whether they were going to be subject to the outages. It's been, you know, there aren't real costs that they're bar that there are, are not immediate costs that they're bearing, but there are definitely public relations costs, and I think we'll see the results of those as 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 things progress.
1: Yeah, a lot of angry uh, customers and angry voters. Uh, Emily Wimberger, is there an upside to the economy? People... Buying batteries and flashlights and maybe diesel generators.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I think there, you know, there's definitely been some economic activity associated with this. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, economists like to think about the counterfactual. So, what would have happened in the absence of these power outages? Um, and you know, both looking at the cost of potential fire risk and um, costs borne by yes, you know, servers being shut down, freezers being shut down, businesses having to close. So, I think it's important not just to think about the economic activity of people buying flashlights, but also what would have happened in the absence of these outages.
1: And how about the carbon impact? Is it possible that this is kind of a, you know, two or three day or five day kind of recession where the greenhouse gas emissions go down because refrigerators aren't humming? And uh, of course you got the diesel generators you working. You have the
0: diesel generators, yes. Um, and the California Resources Board did release um, some advice about sort of, you know, if, if you are in a power outage, here's here's the backup generators that you should be using. And these are the ones that comply with local air district air quality regulations. So I think that is an important concern.
1: Catherine Wilford, at what point does this become a concern for business? California is a highly regulated state. It is high cost. At what point does electrical uncertainty impact the costs of doing business in California or locating a business in California?
5: I I think it already has. I mean, these have been pretty long outages and yeah, businesses are are taking a hit from that. And I'm sure um, it's, it's entering kind of business people's calculations about how, how much they want to locate in California if they have an option to, to move elsewhere where they don't face this risk. I mean, if you have to buy a backup generator, that's, you know, a, a cost that you incur to do business in California that you wouldn't incur in, in places where these outages aren't happening
1: Emily Wimberger, uh, clearly PG&E, Electric Utility in Northern California, is going to have to invest a lot in its grid. We were talk other places in this podcast about sectionalizing it and hardening infrastructure. That's going to cost money. Investors might pay for some of that, but customers are going to pay for a lot of that. Is the cost of energy going to go up even more in California because of these outages?
0: Well, I think it's- Fires. uh... Yeah, I I think it's a a possibility. And it shows that California really is on the forefront in terms of facing climate impacts. We've seen extreme weather events. We've seen droughts. We've seen catastrophic wildfires. And so this is becoming the new normal in California and that we do need to see energy prices reflecting the probability and the really real risks that we face when it comes to climate change
1: and Catherine your take on whether this is going to affect you know drive up the cost of uh, doing business in California it's already a, a high cost state and w- water is going to cost more because of uh, the infrastructure needed to capture unpredictable rainfall and precipitation how about energy
5: yeah i mean i've seen people talking about electricity prices doubling even and as you say they're they're already high in california i, I I do worry also about their becoming kind of a bifurcated system. Right now we all use the same electricity grid and basically all have the same levels of reliability. And with these outages, at least anecdotally, we're we're trying to do more research on this. What you're seeing is that people can who can afford it are buying the Tesla batteries for m- multiple thousands of dollars or b- backup generators whereas the people who can't are are using flashlights or just getting by without power for a couple of days. So I worry that we'll have this system where people who can afford it are getting 24 seven reliable power because they're buying kind of these private backup sources of power and that the, the grid itself will become kind of less reliable. And, you know, it'll be like whatever, some people ride the public bus and some people drive Mercedes, it'll become more quality differentiated.
1: Right. Climate can exacerbate the class and economic advantages and disadvantages in a system. And Emily, you've done some work with the Climate Impact Lab that maybe touches on some of that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a it's a really important point to think about sort of the most vulnerable populations. And uh, recently, Governor Newsom in California set aside seventy five million dollars to address local and state impacts of these outages. So, and that th- that money is earmarked for the most vulnerable communities. And I think it is really important to think about income inequality as we look at the impacts of climate change. And we do see extreme exacerbations in communities that are on the forefront of fighting climate, and they're the least able to afford it, and often face the largest impacts.
1: We've been talking about the social and economic cost of PG&E's planned power outages with Emily Wimberger of the Rhodium Group and Catherine Wolfram, Professor of Business at UC Berkeley. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Joining me now are Danny Kennedy, Managing Director of the California Clean Energy Fund, and Loretta Lynch, former President of the California Public Utilities Commission. Blackouts and wildfires notwithstanding, California remains the world's fifth largest economy. With PG&E on the fritz, how should California
3: power Silicon Valley and other economic engines in Northern California? Well, we should stop letting PG&E do whatever it wants and stop letting PG&E be a rogue corporation and instead hold PG&E to account or take it over. Because our economy and our businesses and our families cannot afford one more day of this corporate negligence.
1: Take it over. The risk doesn't change. The state can take over PG&E. There's still lots of risk. There's still lots of capital needs. So I'm not sure the state of California or
3: Governor Newsom really want to, or the taxpayers really want to own PG&E. Well, we already do. The ratepayers already do own PG&E because the ratepayers give every dime of every dollar that PG&E spends to PG&E. So we're going to pay as ratepayers. One way or the other. And then the question is what can we do to ensure that the system is safe and reliable and, frankly, green and at a reasonable cost? And if you want those four things safety, reliability, clean energy, and at a reliable cost PGE has lost the benefit of the doubt and, frankly, has lost the right to bamboozle us one more day.
1: Danny Kennedy, you're an investor, been working in investment for, for quite a while. Should there be a government takeover of uh, California's biggest utility?
6: Just to go back to the prior question, we've got to get to 100% clean energy. That's the law of the land. That's California's legislative intent, as well as decarbonizing the other industrial sectors. pg e to Loretta's point, has failed persistently for the first part of the 21st century to deliver customer value, safety, reliability. And so... What structure and ownership goes forward is to be decided in the coming months, hopefully, rather than years. It shouldn't be protracted. It can't be drawn out any further. And municipalization per se or some version of that is a, a very attractive offer given the leadership being shown by the CCAs, the community choice aggregators in this state that are currently delivering retail to a growing number of citizens and, and metres, uh, will be 70% of the load in the pg e territory before too long. Uh, and the back end of the poles and wires and the rest of the PG&E business could probably be profitably for the state and citizens of California municipalized simply because their cost of debt will be less. PG&E has for so long failed as a company, bankrupt twice in just a couple decades, that its cost of debt, and, and remember it finances most of its improvements per se, if it were to make the choices that we need made with equity and debt, would be much more expensive than municipal bond debt, which would be the way that a public entity would finance the future. So I think there's a really good case for that. It needs to be decided and and directed by the state government who has to take control of the situation before we have more crises.
1: The mayor of San Jose, along with the mayor of Oakland, Sacramento, have a proposal, Laura Lynch, to kind of basically to make a co-op, which sounds a little bit like an organic grocery store or something from the 70s. But but what is the co-op? And do you think that really will gain traction? Mayors of the biggest cities, some of the biggest cities, two of the three biggest cities in the Bay Area saying we want to take it over?
3: I applaud Mayor Liccardo and all the mayors and supervisors who have put a very serious proposal and a way forward on the table. Here's our problem. No matter how many times we try to make PG&E do the right thing, its corporate culture is so broken, and as a corporation, it has been adjudged criminally negligent for failing to maintain its system. I'm concerned that the rot at PG&E is so thorough and pervasive, it can't be fixed." So now we need to change it. Plus, the billions and billions of dollars California needs to invest in our system to make it safe, because PG&E has failed to make those investments even when they've been ordered to. Those dollars should be best spent dollar for dollar on safety and reliability and not on corporate profits. Right now, PG&E has a 12% profit. So that means over and above all of its excess spending, 12 cents of every dollar goes to the shareholders. That $0.12 cents could be put back into the system to make it safer and more reliable if we had government ownership of the electric system. And, you know, it's not an untried radical idea. In every state of the nation, we have public ownership of electricity companies. And we do in California, LADWP and SMUD and Palo Alto. Sacramento, Los Angeles, are kind of municipal utilities. Municipal utilities. About 20% of our electricity in California right now today is being provided by government-owned utilities. So this is an everyday occurrence that is eminently doable, and it is time to do it here and now with PG&E.
1: We're talking with Loretta Lynch, former president of the California Public Utilities Commission, and Danny Kennedy of the California Clean Energy Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. When we come back, we'll look at some possible solutions to California's power problems.
6: There are better technologies, there are better ways of running electricity companies, and the fact of the matter is, we haven't as a state decided to do that. We've talked about it, but we keep on making Humpty Dumpty all over again.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about powering California's future with Loretta Lynch, former public utilities commissioner, and Danny Kennedy of the California Clean Energy Fund. After racking up $30 billion in debt, PG&E filed for bankruptcy in early 2019. In summer, California had its hottest July on record and even more wildfires, for which the utility was forced to admit responsibility. Things seem to be going from bad to worse for PG&E, and climate change isn't helping. With more extreme weather events happening around the country, is this a cautionary tale for other states?
6: As far as the climate impacts you know, go, I think really we're seeing the weaknesses of our institutions to deal with the extreme weather-related change that we're going to see across the board, across the country, across the globe and the fact that we need to move faster in these times. When things are not working, they need solutions. There are better technologies. There are better ways of running electricity companies. There are better ways to finance the investments need to make them resilient in this day and age of climate change. And the fact of the matter is we haven't as a state decided to do that. We've talked about it for a few years now, but we keep on making Humpty Dumpty all over again. And uh, until we decide to move And get the entrepreneurs engaged, which is my business, that have the technology, have the solutions to build better, cleaner, cheaper, clean energy answers to these problems, uh, you know, we're going to just see it repeat and do deja vu.
1: So all of a sudden, there's been a lot of talk, renewed interest in battery, local storage. People want to put, uh, if they have solar, add some battery so you can uh, generate sunlight, energy in the daytime, use it at night from your battery. But there's also lots of diesel generators. We hear about microgrids, sectionalizing the grid so that it can be turned off in smaller areas. Danny Kennedy, where is that technology going to happen and who's going to pay for it?
6: Well, look. You know, the technology is available now to microgrid things to provide battery backups to circuits that are critical to resilience and to you know critical needs. There's ways that everyone's home or hospital or multi tenant dwelling can be insured. Whether that's you know plugging your vehicle into the home or Whatever the case may be, we we know how to do that. It's not that hard. It does require new business models. It does require new contractors to deliver it. It does require some new technologies. And that's good. That's an opportunity to grow business. The bigger question right now is whether we're going to reorganize the entity to deliver those solutions rather than just go back to a 13% rate-based profit on a transmission upgrade, which will cost billions of dollars and not actually enact any of these modern technologies, but rather go back to the 20th century formula that they've fallen back on before, Um, and whether we're going to have the political will to really drive that change and adopt these entrepreneurial solutions that are available. Where are they going to come from? They're going to come from other parts of of California. You know, San Diego has been doing better than we have in terms of fire safety and so on but also all around the globe. I mean, microgrids are now being pioneered in a way that Silicon Valley can only gaze at in awe in Africa and India, you know, and so we're going to learn lessons for how to do this right from the globe and and we should be proactively reaching out and trying to seek those startups to come to these shores to build those businesses right now, but we're still sending mixed signals about whether we want them at all or whether we're just going to recreate the problems we've had for decades.
3: Well, and the reason we're sending mixed signals is because PG&E captured its regulators. So the regulator is a lapdog, not a watchdog. And the regulator is focused on what does PG&E want and what is good for PG&E. That has to stop. We need to right now ask the question, what is good for California? And what does California need and want? What do the workers want? The victims of those wildfires, the ratepayers? the environmentalists. Everyone, all businesses and families. And Danny's right. The technology's there. And the price is dropping every day. It is so technologically feasible, financially feasible, and legally feasible to get to that advanced energy electric system that California needs. That what's standing in the way are the complicit regulators and the corrupt corporations. And that's not unique to California. There's lots of regions around this country where Public
1: Utilities Commission are, are good old boys with, with the local utilities, particularly in the South. So at Letter Lynch, what are some of the broad lessons of uh, the California wildfires and, and running our electrical economy in this digital age for other states and other parts of the
3: country? Well, look around. We are not unique in California or Northern California of having dry, mountainous, uh, wildfire-ready conditions. Mm-hmm. But only PG&E has experienced the problems that we've experienced throughout California. And that's because the regulator became the lapdog and allowed PG&E to do whatever it wanted. And what it did was cut corners on maintenance and safety, pocket the money, send it out for dividends to shareholders. As Judge Alsup required PG&E to come in and talk about, after the first horrible wildfire in 2017, PG&E has paid out over $5 billion in dividends instead of fixing its system we're paying the victims.
1: Well, that's what it's set up to do, and it's easy to say. You know, uh, there's been a lot of talk about hedge funds coming into PG&E, et cetera. But some of the largest owners of PG&E are the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, CalPERS, the California Public Employee Retirement System, T Rowe Price Cap Value Fund. These are retail investors. Traditionally, people who invest in utilities are people who want steady income. They they clip coupons, and so you know these are like teachers and average Americans who invest in utilities because they think
3: they're safe and they're the ones who are receiving those dividends. So some of them are going to average Americans. Absolutely. And some of them are going to hedge fund speculators and bottom feeder vulture uh, funds who came in after PGE chose bankruptcy and scooped up that stock at pennies on the dollar. But what we know is this. Even though the ratepayers have paid at top dollar Cadillac prices f- to ensure a safe system, what they got was a jalopy broken down system because pg e cut corners and the regulator did not hold them to account. I know I was a regulator who tried to hold them to account and their choice was to file bankruptcy to get out from under our requirements to trim their trees and fix their system because they wanted to pocket that money. So you could argue that all those investors for the last 15 years have over-earned because they were getting dividends assuming the system was safe when the system wasn't safe. So now those investors, frankly, have to pay for those years of over-earning because California must have and should insist on a safe, reliable, clean, and relatively cost-effective system. And it doesn't have that with pg e today.
1: Right. And they've, investors have paid. Uh, two years ago, the stock was at 70 Today, it's around $6. Uh, so somebody's lost a lot of money there. Those investors, Danny Kennedy...
6: I was just going to say one of the lessons for the rest of the country that should be paid attention to is around FERC's regulation, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which does the transmission regulations. And, you know, some of these fires are transmission related. It looks like the most recent serious ones potentially. And, you know, they're the ones that are allowing a 13% return on investment or more, uh, which is, you know, something that investors are sort of counting on. And yet that technology set is letting us down in these wildfire prone conditions um, where we have people living in the interface, as it's called. And so we need to think about that as a national lesson. You know, how do we create protected microgrids for towns like Paradise rather than building lines into them through forests, all that sort of stuff? And right now, the incentives, unfortunately, from FERC are to build the transmission anew and put that on the rate base because they'll make 13% out of it or better.
3: Or more. Edison is asking for 17% for a new transmission line. So as long as FERC holds hands out carrots at every turn and does not employ the sticks that they have legally available to them, the companies are going to eat the carrots and we all will pay. But this this is a fundamental challenge to a lot of the plans to
1: green the grid, to have large industrial scale solar or wind projects far away from populations and then transmit them, the electricity, to the called load centers, the urban populations. I recently interviewed the Public Lands Commissioner of Washington State. There's most people live along the coast around Seattle. There's a lot of wind in eastern Washington that they're developing. I've driven there recently. And that means a lot of transmission lines over the Cascades, which are a tinderbox. So at some point, these fires, Danny Kennedy, challenge the greening of the grid because of these big renewable projects far away in warm and hot places
6: across timber. I don't think it challenges the greening of the grid. I think it challenges the assumption that you're going to do the greening of the the electricity supply through utility-scale projects only. If they're dependent on transmission and the transmission is going to cause the problems, then we've got to think of a different solution. Lo and behold, renewables are wonderful because they're distributed technologies, and the, the lowest-cost way of deploying them is actually at the point of use. So let's get more interstitial deployments of wind, solar, storage happening. Uh, let's do more rooftop. Let's do more commercial. Rooftop
1: is the but economists would say. Rooftop is more expensive than something big uh, industrial
6: uh, scale out in the the rooftop. Economists would say the installation of a utility scale solar plant is less than the installation of a rooftop solar plant but the costs of transmission and the other elements that are required to get that power to market are greater than the cost to get the power to market when it's on the roof, and they come out actually very competitive. It's all about the design choices you make and what the regulators want. And if you want green and you want safe, to your point exactly, Greg, you might end up choosing not to do the large-scale utility as much as we are currently tending to do, and you go more towards the distributed. A truly green grid will be one that is distributed uh, in large part. Not entirely. It's not either or in any of these cases. We tend to try to simplify it. It's going to be both and. There will be transmission in the future, but let's not incentivize, to Loretta's point, transmission, which is dangerous, simply for a return on... on
1: the-, the cost of transmission has changed. It's gone up dramatically, the risk around it.
3: Well, the only reason it's gone up is because FERC's been allowing extraordinary, and I would argue, exorbitant profits. Mm-hmm. But I agree with Danny that The grid of the future, if we want it green and cost-effective and safe, has to include much more of a distributed element than it does today. And those economists that you were talking about, Greg, those economists are back in the cassette tape era. They are planning a command and control system that is region-wide or even west-wide, and instead we have to look at all of the costs that they're not taking into account. We have to take the blinders off and not just look at what the utility pays, but what our economy pays. The prime example happened two weeks ago when pg blacked out over 2 million of its customers as a precautionary tale. Still a and, fire. So, and still had a fire. Wouldn't, so the what, fires, but, wouldn't there been more fires if they didn't do it? We don't know. But what we do know is this. Two million customers had real economic damage that those economists you're talking about when they look at the value and the viability of a transmission line versus a rooftop solar are not taking into account. And those real economic damages fall much more heavily on the poor and working class. So if your refrigerator spoils, lots of people who have second houses can go afford to restock. But people who are on food stamps cannot. And those people then don't eat. And those economists are not taking that real-world extraordinary cost into we, account. We talked to economists earlier in the show who, who looked at some of that, but
1: you're right. Climate makes disparities worse. The poor get screwed worse with climate than they, than they typically do. So of the Fires that have happened recently, i believe seven of the ten worst fires recently have become because of have happened because of electrical lines, not just p g e there was the two thousand and eighteen woolsey fire that was Edison three people killed ninety seven thousand acres, fifteen hundred structures burned so letter Lynch you know what about other utilities you know p g e perhaps rightly so gets a lot of the the uh the criticism, but it also is Edison, which powers much
3: of southern california and I lay that at the feet. Of the complicit regulators. When the regulators let the utilities run amok and they don't even take any evidence or facts about what works and what doesn't work, then we're going to have these problems. So environmental groups went to the PUC to say, we would like to put experts on uh, uh, in, in the administrative trial, we'd like to introduce experts and expert testimony about what really mitigates wildfires. And the PUC said no. And instead, they rubber stamped the utilities wildfire mitigation plans as filed. So what we're going to do in California, again, is spend hundreds of millions of dollars to change out wood poles to steel poles and not cover the conductors, which are the actual source of the fire, and not change out the old equipment that's attached to those poles that spark and light the fire. So it's not wood versus steel poles. It's all the equipment and the lines and the old lines. But because the utilities will make more money changing out a wood pole to a steel pole and make very little money changing out an old conductor to a new conductor, California has now embarked, courtesy of regulatory complicitness, on A program that's a billion dollars in cost that is actually not going to mitigate any wildfires. This is all going in a
1: very kind of local, almost kind of tribal way where it seems like people, there's an incentive here for communities to um, generate their own electricity, have their own
3: storage so they can be an island when bad things happen. Right. Except that's why the mayor's proposal, 24 mayors and supervisors throughout PG&E territory, from Stockton to Redding to San Jose to Marin County. Hundreds of miles in between. Hundreds of miles in between are saying, hey, let's band together for the common good. Let's band together for the people. Let's band together for local energy democracy. We don't necessarily need a monopoly, but we do need as a society to ensure that every single California family and business has access to clean, safe, reliable energy at an economic price. And so what you don't want to do is cream off the biggest companies or cream off Mm -hmm. the, the wealthiest people who have real, reliable energy, and leave all of the rest of us in a third world banana republic run by PG&E and its cronies. So what we have to ensure is equity across the board. And we've gotten that right in other arenas. We can get it right here. And that's why the mayor's proposal is so exciting and, frankly, groundbreaking, because they're going to take those advanced technologies that Danny's been talking about and and that are here now, and they could implement them in different ways to to solve for their individual community needs. But as a group, what's not to like about that?
1: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking with Loretta Lynch, former president of the California Public Utilities Commission, and Danny Kennedy, managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund. My other guests today were reporters Russell Gold of The Wall Street Journal and J.D. Morris with the San Francisco Chronicle. We also heard from economist Emily Wimberger of the Rhodium Group and Catherine Wolfram, professor of business administration at UC Berkeley. We invited pg and to participate in this program, but the company didn't make a spokesperson available. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org or wherever you get your pods. Also, I'd like to share some exciting news. Climate One has been nominated for Best Green Podcast at the iHeartRadio Podcast Awards presented in Los Angeles in January. We want to thank you and iHeartRadio. Please keep writing those reviews. They really do help. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.